Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to the Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 48, Pythagoras Revived, an anatomy of Neo-Pythagoreanism. Well, in the previous two episodes, we've covered quite a few things which contribute to our picture of what Neo-Pythagoreanism was. And in this episode, we'll bring all that together with some new stuff to try to get a picture of the forms which the revival of Pythagoreanism took in the Hellenistic and later period. And I don't know if you could tell, but I put Pythagoreanism in quotation marks in the previous sentence. As far as we can tell, most of what made up Neo-Pythagoreanism had little to do with Pythagoras or with the Pythagorean movements, which we discussed in episodes 16 and 17 of the podcast. But there's actually a further need for hesitation here, and it boils down to this. The terms Neo-Pythagoreanism and Neo-Pythagorean are used a lot in scholarly literature, but they are, in the final analysis, kind of dangerous and sloppy terms. Let's start with the easy one, Neo-Pythagoreanism. This term is a classic example of a movement which never existed. There were, in the period from the 1st century BCE onward, so the late Hellenistic, at which point you'll remember the genuine Pythagorean movements which were somehow descended from Pythagoras had died out as far as we can tell. There were in this period and onwards plenty of people who thought that they were in some sense reviving Pythagoreanism, whether in a philosophic sense, doing a kind of metaphysics, which they took to be the genuine Pythagorean teachings, or in a kind of more loose sense, like the Pythagorean hippies, whom we discussed in episode 46. This was a sort of lifestyle choice, or set of possible lifestyle choices, which seems to have popped up more or less in the late Roman Republican period. So, all these and more were in some way living a, quote, Pythagorean life, end quote, or doing Pythagorean philosophy, as far as they were concerned, as far as the ancients were concerned, but the evidence suggests that there was nothing even remotely approaching a movement here, in the sense of a philosophic school. The only linking factor among all these types of Pythagorean revival, in quotes again, is the idea of Pythagoras and Pythagoreanism. So, Neo-Pythagoreanism, not a movement. What about the adjective Neo-Pythagorean? Can we use that to discuss history in some way? Well, yes we can, and scholars do so regularly. Uh, my problem here is not that the historical phenomena described by the term Neo-Pythagorean didn't exist, they did, but rather that the term Neo-Pythagorean is used to describe such a broad range of historical phenomena. At least three very different cultural scenarios, in fact. So the term is just a bit too broad to be useful in a precise way. But never mind, the Schwepp listenership is probably most interested in figuring out what these Neo-Pythagoreans were up to, so we're going to get into that in this episode. The fact that they were up to a number of different things, which are not all necessarily present in a given instance of Neo-Pythagorean culture, is fine. We'll just invent some more specific terminology as we go along and kind of try to do an anatomy of Neo-Pythagoreanism. And we should remember that the cultural tropes and activities which we're going to describe in this episode are much more important for the history of Western esotericism than the genuine Pythagorean tradition ever was. 
We've discussed our evidence for that tradition in some detail, and partly because it's fascinating on its own terms, and partly too because it helps illuminate the history of Neopythagorean culture. Nevertheless, when the medieval and early modern worlds looked back to Pythagoras as the founding father of philosophy, the earliest scientist of harmony, the father of all geometers, the ascetic founder of a pure and holy way of life, in some ways prefiguring Christianity, and in a thousand other reimagined guises, they were drawing on sources which, for the most part, emerged not from Pythagoreanism, but from the Neo-Pythagorean movements of the late Hellenistic period and the Roman Imperial Age. So let's get into them. I think it's helpful to divide the subject of Neo-Pythagoreanism up into three different parts. We shall be calling them 1. Philosophical Neo-Pythagoreanism, 2. The Rise of the Pythagorean Mystique, and 3. Lifestyle Pythagoreanism. We'll discuss them in reverse order, from easiest to define to hardest, because it's the philosophical stuff which really gives us problems and where I feel the term Neopythagoreanism or Neopythagorean is most vitiated. So let's start with the lifestyle stuff, where it seems pretty straightforward. Here we are returning to our Pythagorean hippies from episode 46 and looking at the idea of a Pythagorean way of life, a way of being Pythagorean, which evolved in the Hellenistic period and later. So we're not talking about philosophy, strictly speaking, although philosophers may have indulged in this way of life, but a kind of set of lifestyle preferences, to use modern terms, which became signifiers of a certain type of person, or even in the case of Apollonius of Tiana, Secundus the silent philosopher, or the snake god Glycon, of God-given wisdom and magical powers. So, there were Pythagorean hippies at one end of the spectrum, but there were also Pythagorean holy men, and at least one example of a Pythagorean god at the other end. Now, we don't have anything like a single source which lays out what people thought it meant to live like a Pythagorean in the revival period, but some commonalities emerge if we look across the range of sources we have available to us. One is vegetarianism. Lots of sources casually refer to a vegetarian diet as being Pythagorean in our period. The late Platonist philosopher Plotinus, in Porphyry's biography of him, is one such figure. He didn't eat meat, and thus, according to Porphyry, he followed the Pythagorean diet plan. Another attribute of the Pythagorean style was silence, or notional silence. We discussed this theme in episode 18, on the topos of Silentium Pythagoricum, Pythagoreans were sometimes expected literally to be silent, as in a vow of silence, like Secundus, the silent philosopher, whose sole Pythagorean attribute was that he refused to speak. So you want to check out episode 18 for him. But there is also a kind of closed-mouthed, playing-your-cards-close-to-your-chest type of quality, called echemuthia in Greek, literally sort of holding one's tongue, this quality of echimuthia is something which some sources, such as Iamblichus and Plutarch, attribute to the Pythagoreans. So Pythagoreans might be expected to make mysterious references or speak in obscure symbolic language, maybe alluding to the initiated silence of the mysteries from time to time at dinner parties. The idea, of course, was a sensible approach to philosophic wisdom, whereby one didn't discuss just anything with just anyone and sort of exercise due caution in revealing the higher levels of philosophic wisdom, 
But in practice, this idea seems also sometimes to have slipped over into just being a bit of a poser and speaking in riddles for the sake of being held to be a wise Pythagorean. So the spectrum of Pythagorean echimuthia seems to have stretched from committed Platonists who kept a tight lid on their metaphysical opinions, lest they be understood wrongly by the lumpen proletariat, which is a very old trope in Platonism, going all the way back to Plato himself, as we've discussed in the podcast, at one end of the spectrum, and that guy at the party who won't shut up about how wise he is and keeps making mysterious statements in the hope that someone will notice him at the other end of the spectrum. These are all forms of Pythagorean ways of behaving. A third aspect of the Neo-Pythagorean lifestyle seems to have been a kind of hippie-ish personal appearance, which we mentioned a couple of episodes ago. We should note here that philosophers generally were known to have a, a certain typical look. Beards were de rigueur, for example, and a beard really stood out in Roman society, where men traditionally shaved themselves clean. And it's not always clear-cut just where the Pythagorean hippie ends and the regular philosopher of another school begins. But as we shall see when we talk about Nigidius Figulus and the esoteric craze which swept the late Roman Republic, having an unwashed toga, a long beard, and generally an unkempt and possibly smelly presentation was associated by some observers with Pythagoreans specifically. Sometimes they wore their hair long as well. As Professor Daniel Ogden mentioned in an earlier episode, the reason that the snake god Glycon had long hair was that he was a Pythagorean. So this was a lifestyle choice open to all levels of society, even the gods, apparently. And um, do check out the members episode where we talked to Professor Ogden about Glycon because there's this magnificent marble statue of him showing his resplendent Pythagorean locks. Now Lucian of Samosota writes a wonderful satire of the pretensions of philosophers in the Roman second sophistic period in which he attacks what we would basically call poor personal hygiene among other faults. Another somewhat hippious side to neo-Pythagorean lifestyleism in some cases, was a sort of arguably a countercultural take, or at least the occupation of certain outsider positions vis-a-vis -vis mainstream society. Some of these folks like to wander around a lot from city to city. And we'll be discussing Apollonius of Tiana in a coming episode, and he wandered around a lot. So these folks were moving around in Roman society, and they had a recognized niche as Pythagoreans, but that niche seems to have included a kind of freewheeling, wandering way of life in some cases. So there you have three aspects of what seem to have been the Neo-Pythagorean lifestyle. Vegetarianism, mysteriousness of discourse, and hippie-ish ways. A given representative of this way of being, let's call him Rupert, need not have had the full compliment, but they seem often to have done so. So, Let's put Rupert aside and take the philosopher Plotinus as a case study here, since we're lucky enough to have a lengthy biography of Plotinus by one of his students. Vegetarian? Check. Mysterious way of speaking? Well, such bon mots as are preserved of Plotinus do seem to fit this category, like the time when one of his students said, Plotinus, it's a festival today, we should go to the temple and worship the gods. And Plotinus responded, They should come to me, not I to them. Nice. Otherwise, hippie-ish? Well, 
he does seem to have been lacking on the personal hygiene front. In the time of his later illness, his students apparently found his habit of kissing them in greeting irksome because he was so smelly. So we seem to have a pretty good match between Plotinus and our Pythagorean lifestyle. Uh, he had a beard, of course, but short hair, so clearly there were options. Note that only the vegetarianism is specifically called Pythagorean by Platonus's biographer Porphyry, but the other stuff accords very well with our picture of the Pythagorean lifestyle that we've drawn up here. Now, moving on to the second cultural manifestation, which some scholars call Neo-Pythagorean, this is the rise of Pythagoras's stock in late antiquity, what we would call the rise of the Pythagorean mystique. He comes, especially in the context of late Platonism, to be the philosopher par excellence. And this high estimation of Pythagoras, of course, is transmitted down the ages in Western esoteric currents of thought. So we're not talking about philosophy here, but rather about ideas about Pythagoras's place in the history of philosophy, a kind of historical narrative which is often described as Neo-Pythagorean. Now, if we want to call this Neo-Pythagoreanism, we can say that it survives right up to the modern period, especially in the Western esoteric traditions, and that it survives throughout the West. Iamblichus and Porphyry, both late Platonists, wrote treatises on Pythagoras and the Pythagorean movement, preserving lots of early material, but also presenting a pretty legendful post-Platonic picture of the philosopher and his school. So these texts are a perfect example of this kind of Neo-Pythagoreanism. The image of Pythagoras which arose in this period, I mean the period from about the 1st century BCE, the late Hellenistic, up until roughly the 6th century CE, when the last active pagan schools of Platonist philosophy were closed by force, the image that arises is more or less the image which has survived until today, outside of specialist researchers who try to work out who the original pre-Platonic Pythagoras was and what pre-Platonic Pythagoreanism was all about. This Pythagoras invented the term philosophy, or alternately, he was the first person to practice philosophy. Um, this is an honor which pretty much all of the later Platonists grant to Pythagoras, although Phoresides of Syros is sometimes added as a co-founder. Pythagoras was concerned with number and geometry. He famously invented the Pythagorean theorem, as we all know from school, which was actually old news by his time, as Near Eastern cultures had been working on it for quite a while before the 6th century. Pythagoras worked on harmony. Music theory still talks about the Pythagorean comma, which is a little fudging of tones which is used in equal temperament. So next time you play the piano, spare a thought for Pythagoras, who made it all possible. This Pythagoras was concerned with a non-geocentric cosmology. As we've mentioned before, Copernicus, Kepler, and their ilk all framed their heliocentric ideas, or had them framed for them by commentators, in terms of a revival of Pythagoreanism. But most of all, Pythagoras was concerned with number, both with genuine mathematical science and with the kind of stuff we talked about in episode 47, arithmology, numerology, and generally anything to do with the oogly-boogly hidden properties of numbers. And the idea that numbers are somehow things, or that reality is somehow mathematical, is often taken in our authors as a crucial Pythagorean position although we as modern interpreters might want to call it more a crucial Platonist position, or at least one of the ideas that Plato plays with. 
Another aspect of the rewriting of Pythagoras in the Hellenistic and later period, the rewriting of the image of Pythagoras, is that his name becomes associated with a certain type of holy man, a wonder-working philosopher, in fact. And this really is a recognized cultural figure in the later Roman Empire. Now, such holy men would probably be expected to exercise our first type of Neo-Pythagoreanism. That is, we can be pretty confident that Apollonius of Tiana and Secundus the Silent Philosopher had long beards and perhaps were vegetarians and so forth. But the main point, especially in the later period known as Late Antiquity, say from about 250 CE and onwards, is that philosophers were expected not just to know the truth, but increasingly to perform miraculous feats of power through their mastery of truth. And people who did this were often seen as Pythagorean. In fact, the Pythagorean holy man may well have been, in part, a pagan answer to the Christian saint, or even to the figure of Jesus himself. If we look at Philostratus's life of Apollonius, for example, we see that the great Pythagorean wanderer, Apollonius, basically does everything that Jesus does in the Gospels, and then some. And this is explicitly through his mastery of Pythagorean philosophy. Our late antique biographies of Pythagoras by Porphyry and Iamblichus are full of wonderful episodes where Pythagoras exercises basically what we would call magical powers. He, of course, can recall his own previous incarnations. This is a staple of later ideas about Pythagoras. But that's kid stuff. What about encountering a ferocious bear and turning it into a peaceful vegetarian through sheer philosophic gravitas? Or what about appearing in two different places at once, a feat of bilocation strongly associated with Pythagorean tradition from quite early on? Pythagoras, in this tradition, has mojo, and late antique Neo-Pythagoreans would be expected to have mojo as well. So we see, as late antiquity goes on, when a philosopher has a biography written about him, because it's always a him in our extant versions, to my knowledge, increasingly with time, more and more kind of magical and miraculous stuff will be attributed to them. So the philosopher Plotinus, in his biography by his student Porphyry, does some wonderful things like discovers which slave stole the necklace and stuff like this. He has um, great perspicuity, but the philosopher Iamblichus can levitate. So this is the kind of progression we see. Perhaps said enough about the Neo-Pythagorean rewriting of the figure of Pythagoras into the ultimate philosopher and sometimes a holy man. But what about the more traditionally philosophical stuff, like we mentioned? Pythagoras is concerned with mathematics and arithmology, for example. Well, let's turn to that material now. This is our third subdivision of Neo-Pythagoreanism, Neo-Pythagorean philosophy. And this is where, as I mentioned, I feel our term Neo-Pythagoreanism becomes most tendentious. Why? Well, there just isn't a really solid method behind all the different ways in which scholars use the term. Sometimes we have a few authors, such as Nicomachus of Gerasa or Brontinus, who weren't really associated with any other school of thought, that they weren't Platonists or Stoics or anything like that, but whose work, having to do as it did with metaphysics of number, is simply called Neo-Pythagorean. Okay then, that's fine. But then we have others such as Numenius of Apamea, 
who's the middle Platonist, whom we shall be discussing in due course on the podcast, whose contemporaries almost always call the Pythagorean, Numenius the Pythagorean. Although from our perspective, he's blatantly a robust middle Platonist, who also happens to think that Socrates, Plato, and everyone else who matters, were following the philosophy of Pythagoras. So he may be thought of himself as a Pythagorean, but then so did Plotinus, Iamblichus, and pretty much everyone else we like to call a Platonist in later antiquity. And we don't call them Pythagoreans just because they trace their philosophic lineage back to Pythagoras, because in actual fact, a huge amount of what they're doing is exegesis of the works of Plato. Then we can add to the mix works like the Theologumina Arithmeticis, discussed last episode. You can call it philosophy, you can call it arithmology, call it whatever you want, but the fact is that this text is our best witness to a type of speculation about number, which was a very important aspect of what it was to think like a Pythagorean in the Roman period. You dealt with numbers as spiritual entities with their own characters and their own metaphysical import. Now, we see bits and bobs of this kind of thinking about number in many later philosophers and thinkers, not just Platonists, but also Christians and so on. But again, we don't just call them Neo-Pythagoreans just because they occasionally refer to six and nine as perfect numbers, as Porphyry does, or discuss the friendly numbers, the philoi arithmoi, as Iamblichus does. We think of this as one interest existing within an overarching Platonist worldview, which, although they probably would have called it Pythagorean philosophy, isn't really enough to make us consider them Neo-Pythagorean philosophers, if you see what I mean. Another problem with the term Neo-Pythagoreanism is we sometimes have ancient references to Pythagoreanism, or to Pythagoras, but we aren't really sure what they're referring to. So, to take a, an example, the critic and amateur philosopher Longinus was a 3rd century man to know in the Roman Empire, and he knew Plotinus and wrote of him that he was a preeminent expounder of the doctrines of Plato and Pythagoras. So what in Plotinus's thought was so Pythagorean, according to Longinus? Well, we just have to guess. We can't actually say for sure. My guess would be that it's Plotinus's doctrine of the one beyond being as first principle, which, as we saw two episodes ago, was often taken along with a dyad as a second principle, to be the fundamentally Pythagorean position, although we recognize that it stems from the unwritten doctrines of Plato, and we have no evidence to trace it back before Plato, although many scholars are tempted to do so and call it Pythagorean teaching within Plato's system. As we've seen, there's no real reason to agree with that. So my money is on the idea that when a philosopher in antiquity after Plato, and after the dying out of Pythagoreanism, when they are described as Pythagorean, for otherwise unknown reasons, you can probably safely bet that they think the ultimate reality is a monad. Now, all the Platonists after Plotinus think the ultimate reality is a monad, but we're not going to call them all Neopythagoreans. So, while I'm dubious about the usefulness of the term Neopythagorean in this philosophic context, I think it makes sense to talk about it as a kind of ingredient in the intellectual possibilities of later Platonism and other ways of thinking. If you think in terms of a primordial monad, and possibly of a dyad, which comes from it, you are possibly going to be described by someone as a Pythagorean, in terms of doctrine. Also, if you think 
number is in some way key or essential for understanding metaphysics. It's, a, it's an ingredient in what makes the universe up. This is also a position that's probably going to be described as Pythagorean. So we would call it Neo-Pythagorean. This doesn't mean you are a Neo-Pythagorean because you hold such ideas. It just means that that's an ingredient in your way of thinking. So there's a properly late antique extension to this, which we find in authors like Iamblichus and Proclus. This is a wholesale adoption of mathematics, both as a theory and as a practice conducive to philosophical development. This is the kind of Neo-Pythagoreanism discussed in Dominic O'Mara's book, Pythagoras Revived, which is mainly concerned with reconstructing a picture of the whole edifice of late Platonist number theory in all its glory, in Iamblichus, Proclus, and others, wherein mathematics and arithmology actually go hand in hand. So it would be a mistake to think that these later Platonists are only interested in arithmology and they don't care about mathematics at all. Quite the contrary. For example, the um, philoi arithmoi that we discussed earlier, the friendly numbers, are in fact a genuine mathematical phenomenon, and they seem to appear first in Western literature in the work of Iamblichus. We'll get back to them when we talk about Iamblichus later on. And they are some genuine mathematical stuff, although they seem to have been put to very esoteric uses in the Western tradition. More on that later. Now, all of this kind of number stuff was very much seen as the province of Pythagoras, as we've seen in our discussion of the rise of the Pythagorean mystique in this episode, and as we saw last episode. So by the time of Iamblichus in the late 3rd century CE, when someone said Pythagorean philosophy, one immediately thought of speculations about number, it seems. One last thing to say about this Neo-Pythagorean philosophic tendency. In a series of articles, the late great John Whitaker has argued that it was specifically in Neo-Pythagorean philosophy that the rise of apophatic writing and thinking got its key impetus, or one of its key impetus. So, I am unconvinced by his confident use of the term Neo-Pythagoreanism, which tends toward constructing an image of a movement, which probably never existed as such, but Whitaker's investigations of the relevant Neo-Pythagorean literature are fascinating, and we do seem to see in the Neo-Pythagorean theories about a primordial monad which sort of transcends any possible predication because it's a pure ultimate unity, this stuff does seem, potentially, to be one of the keys for the way in which in later antiquity the idea of an ineffable reality arises, or that the primordial reality is ineffable and beyond the ability of human thought or words to comprehend, which is of course a point dear to those of us who love the Western esoteric traditions. So, to sum up, if we had to give a concise working definition of Neo-Pythagorean philosophy, we would call it a philosophical tendency in post-Platonic authors to privilege number as a fundamental metaphysical reality. So that's pretty vague, but it's the most specific definition I can come up with which seems to encompass all the usages which we find in scholars like Dodds, Whitaker, and others who routinely use the term Neo-Pythagorean. This type of Neo-Pythagoreanism might include just about any late Platonist, Plotinus and later, because all of these thinkers posited a one as a first principle, and they often had a Platonist dyad, or something analogous to that, as the first reality to arise 
after the one, so we're in the usual territory of the esoteric Plato and the unwritten doctrines. And you can have a listen to episode 25 of the podcast if you're a bit hazy on the story of the unwritten doctrines. Now, this tradition of metaphysics, the Neopythagorean, seems to have been understood in antiquity as Pythagorean. We don't know how or when this attribution occurred, actually, but it was probably a development from the idea of Plato, the esoteric author and thinker, whose secret doctrine was learned from Archytas the Pythagorean, and then later transmitted to the Old Academy. If you're not too interested in the intricacies of these things, don't worry about it, and it's speculative anyway. The point is, at some point, someone decided that anything to do with number metaphysics was Pythagorean, and it stuck. So, that's our episode, and those are the three subdivisions of Neopythagoreanism laid out as I see them. Now, these three categories, I should emphasize, are not mutually exclusive at all. One might be a philosopher, like Rupert, whom we mentioned earlier, who believes in a one and an indefinite dyad, but he doesn't go in for any of the other nonsense. He hasn't got a beard. He's not wearing a patched cloak. He doesn't wander around. He's just a normal bloke, actually, but he just happens to hold that metaphysical position. But one could also embrace the whole Pythagorean lifestyle of the Roman period. Such a person, let's call him Steve, would wander about, practice vegetarianism, wear Apache cloak and long hair, and perhaps perform magical acts of power. Or one could do all of these things. And most probably such a person, a kind of Stuport or Reeve figure combining both, contemplating the one while wandering the countryside in a long dirty cloak and healing people through knowledge of secret numerical mysteries, would subscribe to the second type of Neopythagoreanism as well, seeing Pythagoras as an important, inspired founder figure in the history of philosophy, but not necessarily. There was a considerable amount of mixing and matching going on, but I think that this threefold division is useful in that it allows us to talk about what I see as three main tendencies within what is generally referred to as Neopythagoreanism, with a full awareness that having one did not necessarily mean having the other two. You could just think, yeah, Pythagoras founded philosophy, but so what? Do you see what I mean? So the three-part anatomy of Neopythagoreanism will come in handy in the very short term when we turn to Philo of Alexandria, whose work is full of intriguing numerical speculation, and also in the medium term when we look in depth at authors like Numenius, Plotinus, Porphyry, Iamblichus, and Proclus, these Platonist writers who left such an indelible footprint on Western esotericism. But it might also be interesting to cast our minds forward a bit at this point. The image accompanying this episode on the website is a wood carving of a guy playing a little lute. This is a representation of Pythagoras from a 15th century church pew in Münster in Germany. So here we have Pythagoras the archetypal musical scientist, but taking the form of a rather nattily dressed lute player. Not particularly esoteric, but it shows the staying power of the image of Pythagoras which arose in our Neopythagorean period. At roughly the same time that that pew was being carved, over to the east in the post-Mongol Islamic heartlands, forms of letter and number speculation, generally known as Islamicate letterism, were rocking the early modern Islamic world, and they were also being described by their practitioners as Pythagoreanism. So here we have Pythagoras the esoteric number theorist, and even Pythagoras the wonder-working philosophic sage, 
able to affect political outcomes through mastery of the hidden lore of numbers. And once again, at roughly the same time, as this letterist magical science was making and breaking Islamic potentates in Persia and North India and the Ottoman realm, a gentleman called Nicholas Copernicus published a book entitled On the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres, in which he argued for the shocking idea that the Earth might be orbiting the Sun rather than the other way around. This was presented as a revival of the ancient Pythagorean system of astronomy, and also attacked as such by this church, for whom Aristotle was the only legitimate ancient source for all things scientific. Here we have Pythagoras the proto-scientist who worked out heliocentrism in the 6th century BCE. So Pythagoras was alive and well in the 16th century in numerous guises, and all of these guises go back to the late Hellenistic, flourished and grew in the Roman period, and achieved their full instauration in late antiquity with the late Platonists who regarded Pythagoras as a godlike sage and founding figure of their tradition. In this episode, we've obviously concentrated more on the important aspects of Neo-Pythagoreanism for the history of Western esotericism. So those interested in the story of how the Pythagorean theorem came to carry the name Pythagorean, or the whole story of the history of harmonic theory, will need to look elsewhere. But in terms of the Pythagorean imaginary which informs Western esoteric traditions to this day, we've hopefully done a decent job of documenting it in this episode. Now this will provide essential background when we begin to discuss later esoteric philosophers, and hopefully enable our listeners to know what the heck is going on when people start talking about the Pythagorean tradition in the context of authors like Numenius, Iamblichus, the Kabbalists, Jakob Böhme, or anyone else who has been given an honorary membership down the ages, and the list is long, because lots of people have worn beards and been vegetarians and speculated on the metaphysics of number. Now the time has come to bid farewell to the silent sage, and turn toward a different but equally esoteric movement with its origins in the Hellenistic period. Join us next time as we introduce Second Temple Judaism, the type of Judaism where things got seriously esoteric. This will be an introduction to another mini-series of episodes, covering a number of genres of crucial importance for the history of Western esotericism, including apocalyptic writings, the Hechelot or Merkava texts, Hellenistic Jewish magic, and much, much more. So until next time, however, let us remember the saying of Apollonius of Tiana, that to keep silent is also to speak, and stay esoteric. Mm -hmm.